Pleasant Good Evening Mets fans and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast, episode 76. Getting you going here on the first episode of the regular season. Sam Lebowitz, Jack Hendon, and Jack, new era of Mets baseball and the Sunday scaries have not left this team. A 4-2 loss in Washington today for the Mets. They finish up what could have been very easily a sweep of the Nats to start the year in a 4-0 start instead of 3-1 start heading to Philadelphia this week. And they did it in about as ugly a way possible, an eighth inning blown save. Uh, and Buck Showalter using his worst reliever, arguably, in a high leverage situation. Lots to talk about. But Jack, first of all, congratulations are in order. You handed in your thesis this week. You're done. That's right. That's right. I, it's done. And baseball's back. I got them both in the same day, which was great. Uh, then they won uh, on opening day, which was good. I mean, this is like, I'm really trying to like look on the, the bright side as far as what this weekend was, but like, I am absolutely filing this game under like the special losses uh, column. Like the, like we need to probably as a pod consider the games that they lose, not only the games that they lose, but the games that like they should have won. Cause this is absolutely a game that you should have won. And when you just, I mean, when you realize that you could have had a four game sweep and you could have been talking about a four game sweep and we're not because of the things that happened, the very, stupid things that happened um it's not very fun uh and yeah i mean at least i don't have to write my thesis on top of this but it's it's yeah it, it, it's not really what you want and it's not how you want to end the week uh your first weekend your first series um i don't know i mean i guess the best place to start with all of this would probably be uh, bringing Chase and Shreve back out for the bottom of the eighth inning when you had literally just done the up and down with him between the sixth and the seventh. Um, I know you want him to face Yadiel Hernandez because he's a lefty and Hernandez is a lefty, but, or maybe honestly, you really needed to give Trevor Williams that much more time to warm up. Um, either way, it, it, I don't really think that like that should have happened at all. And I think that, the Trevor May was unavailable excuse is probably not like a totally uh, vindicating excuse here. Because it's not even an excuse that we got. Buck said after the game, yeah. there was nothing wrong with Trevor May. Right. So then what were we doing? Up in the seventh and then didn't pitch the eighth inning. And that, listen, Buck, it's a shame that we have to have this conversation so early in the season. We're four games in. The yeah. team is three and one. Those first three games, they looked great. Uh, Obviously, against a team that might lose 100 games this year, especially in this division with some strong teams in these nationals who are bad uh, and made the Mets look probably a little bit better than they actually are. Mm -hmm. But credit where it's due, the team got strong starting pitching for the first three, all four games, Carrasco yeah. looked pretty good today. He did. Uh, and the offense looked fine. Um, guys are hitting to start the year, which is neat. Yeah, uh, not not what it was last year at all, but yeah. yeah. Strong start to the season, and it kind of sours the conversation as we have to pivot to a chat about, one, Pete Alonzo had a really, really horrid defensive inning, and if he cleans things up on his end, we're probably not even talking as much about the managerial decisions, and no. two, about the managerial decisions and why Buck Showalter felt the need to – put an ultimatum on uh, on Trevor Williams getting into this game and saying he has to pitch today no matter what. Got to get him working. He's the only guy in the bullpen who didn't work in the series otherwise, and he was going to get in this game regardless of score, according to Buck Showalter. And why it had to be in the eighth inning of a two-to-one game no, uh, with a runner on base already, I don't necessarily have an issue with the Chase and Shreve thing. I understand the up-downs are not, like, great – for a relief pitcher, especially because he'd already had one. I think that's more the main issue. Right. That's um, the big thing. Cause I mean, for me, it just, it made the Hernandez hit in inevitability, especially cause it's Yadiel Hernandez who like, I mean, we want to talk about guys who are going to do things to the Mets, like annoying little. Yeah. The music stops when he steps in, he's strangely good against us, but I, oh, anyway, so what, what were you saying? Yeah. I, I think it's, it's 
obviously the Pete thing is yeah. there were three plays that he should have made differently in that inning. Uh, and then there's the show alter thing is that you can't pit. You can't make your bullpen decisions based on preordained choices. Yeah. Uh, regardless of who he's going to face. Like I get the situation had the, had the Mets had more runs on the board. It's not a situation. I think that we think twice, if it was a five, one game, instead of a two, one game, having him face the bottom third of the nationals order mm-hmm. who are all three right-handed uh, or excuse me, two of the three are right-handed. The middle one, Lucius Fox is not, uh, right. but Michael Franco and Victor Robles are right-handed. I don't think that that's a bad situation for Trevor Williams, but given that he came in the game with a runner on first base and given that it was a two to one game in the eighth inning when he had better relievers available, as he said, Trevor may hadn't pitched since Thursday. Um, I don't understand why. Yeah. I don't understand why Trevor Williams had to under all under any, under any circumstance had to be that guy. No. If he's the guy that needs to get working, he won last night by multiple runs, five nothing. Why not let him finish out last night? I, I don't get it. I yeah. he said post game and he got a little snippy with the reporters who pushed him on it that he's just not going to work certain relievers or any reliever three out of four days to start the season, uh, which I think is valid. Right. But, uh, I don't think that there's. I think there's a middle ground here. I don't think yes. like yes, we don't want Ottavino and Drew Smith to work three out of four days. But do we need to go to Trevor Williams in that spot? No. Seth Lugo threw like 11 pitches on Friday, and, and that was the full extent of his work. Um, I would, I guess, like to go on record like very briefly and actually probably give it to Trevor Williams a little bit because he didn't actually like get blistered out of that game. Um, the cruise ground ball was – just a, you know, it was a chopper that found its way through. He almost got out of that pretty, uh, you know, pretty smoothly, but it was one of those situations where like if Seth Lugo is pitching to Nelson Cruz, that's absolutely an out. Like it, it there's no chopper. There's no falling behind two and oh, there's, n- there really isn't any sort of conflict. And the biggest problem for me was that through that entire inning, and it was really drawn out too. He, Trevor Williams faced five batters and you didn't get anybody warm during any of it. There was well, never he, any doubting that Trevor Williams was this guy. It was quintupling down. Um, and he only threw like 13 or 14 pitches to those five guys. Once he got through Soto, he only had 11 pitches. They were putting balls in contact and play yeah. very quickly off of him. Yeah. And he got I, lucky. He almost got out of it with this game intact. In he gave up, uh, Two seeing eye ground ball singles to Franco on his first pitch and then to Cruz for the go ahead hit. He gave up a bunt single that Pete mishandled uh, to score a run. He gave up the ground ball that should have been at least a force out uh, that turned into Pete's throwing error. Uh, And then he got the one play in that inning that was done correctly by Pete, which was Juan Soto almost bailing him out. Mm-hmm. and swinging at a first pitch changeup with the bases loaded and one out in a tie game yeah. that was diving towards the dirt. And Soto chopped it to Alonzo, who came in with the force out at home. So he, he almost got lucky. And then he worked 2-0 and on Cruz and then came back in the count with a couple of well-pitched, uh, well-placed pitches, a 2-0 fastball that was 93 on the down and outside corner, perfectly placed on the corner. And then the two, two pitch probably had a little too much plate, but Cruz chopped at it and it just found that space between Lindor and Cano in the middle of the diamond. Also Robinson Cano still being in the game at that point, I think is malpractice. Right. We, we should talk about Robinson Cano. Cause I think if you want to make the argument that Williams is not a problem, if Alonzo's problems don't exist, we don't even have a problem to begin with potentially if the inning before that, somebody is batting with two on and two out for Robinson Cano against Sean Doolittle. I mean, there are so many different reasons why that at-bat should not have happened. Right. Number one, Doolittle made Cano look stupid on Friday, right? He's already beaten him once in this series. Number two, the very obvious lefty-lefty situation. Number three, it is Robinson Cano. 
you not only have J.D. Davis on the bench, you had Starling Marte on your bench, who has come through in a number of situations during the series and is Starling Marte. And Marte um, and Marte allows you to switch your defense around right. to be a whole lot better for the late in uh, for the high leverage late game situations. You put, you know, you put him in that spot where Cano's your second baseman and just flip-flop him and Jeff McNeil, put Marte in the outfield, put McNeil who was playing left field at second base, and you've got a much stronger defensive unit, and you give yourself a better chance offensively in letting Marte face yeah. do little. That would have yeah, that would have been like there was no there was nothing that could have gone wrong in that scenario. And yet we just like, didn't do it. Like maybe it doesn't work out, but at the end of the day, you improve your team defensively and you put yourself yeah. in a better situation to succeed offensively in that position. I'm sure that if asked about a post game, I didn't see if he was, Buck would have said something to the extent of we were, you know, Marte had that oblique injury. We're trying to get him a day off after playing the first three games, which sure, fine. Uh, but still, then in that case, why not hit JD? And then JD right. can slide over to third and Eduardo Escobar can play second for the rest of the game. So there, there's all these things that when push comes to shove, simple strategic decisions that Buck Showalter kind of dropped the ball on uh, and leads me to a point that's been brought up by a few of our, you know, trusted peers that, that you know, are smart with baseball stuff. Yeah. I'm not sure Buck is, is cut out for this in 2022. He might be a little out of his depth here. We're four games in and I don't want to make any broad uh, expansive accusations about his managerial skill, but like, you know, this isn't just today. There's been pretty blatant pinch hitting opportunities since day one that he's missed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and some real interesting bullpen management decisions too, going down to opening day when he went with some of his best relievers in a game that was not close and, and got four guys work uh, who might not have necessarily needed to work on opening day. It was uh, there's some interesting decisions here is the point. Yeah. Um, like Robinson Cano was batting third today. I don't know what the deal is with that. Well, that's not Buck. I mean, and that's probably a good cross. We don't know it's not Buck. I I would imagine at this point, because these are the same exact decisions that like Luis Rojas was being accused of making, so to speak. I mean, I think at some point, especially given the way that most successful teams are using data to, to enforce and inform how they fill out lineup cards, um, this seemed to be a, another example uh, of what we saw last year where like pretty inexplicable decisions were being made. Now I would never, I think I would never give Buck the benefit when it comes to pinch hitting. I think that's absolutely the decision that he's there to make. He and Glenn Sherlock need to know better in those spots. Um, yeah. But really, I think that's probably the thing that has, that bothers me the most about today. It's not even what happened in the eighth inning. It's the conditions that were put in place to set up a bad eighth inning and in turn, like take us out of a series, you know, talking about a four game sweep of a series that I think would have been a really, really well earned four game sweep. Um, I mean, there were a lot of things that went right with this team uh, and there were a lot of good storylines as well that kind of hopefully we can also keep you know some sort of i'm not the kind of person who would tell someone upset about today that like it doesn't matter like the, these games these losses they add up and they absolutely do matter in the scheme of things but they do and before we move on to that i yes. want to go back to the lineup thing because i'm not sure that i agree with you on that jack i i i understand that we've been you know looking at head scratching lineup decisions for years now especially under rojas and, and we assumed listen I know Luis Rojas wasn't making his own lineups. We know that. Like, that's a fair assumption to make, given the state of baseball analytically and given the state yeah. of the Mets' growing analytical department under Rojas's tenure. Yeah. However, this is Buck Showalter, who is Buck Showalter, who is old, has been around the game for a long time, is respected by so many around the game, for good reasons and, and not as good reasons, uh, especially his own current front office who sought him out and gave him this job. I think he might be getting input from the front office about lineups. I do not think 
that he has no say in it. I think he absolutely has the final say. And if he wants Robinson Cano to bat third, Robinson Cano is batting third. But why would he want that though? Is my question. Because, because, you know, Robinson. That bad is the, is the big thing. Like, this is Mickey Calloway bad. If we're talking like. Well, someone made the decision to bat Robinson Cano third today. And I think that it's most likely because I I get that Cano last time he played, he had good numbers in 2020 and that we put it into a projection system and it's going to read based on the last time Cano played in major league baseball. And that's not going to be accurate because he's a a heck of a different person and player than he was in 2020 because he's clean now we assume. Uh, But I assume that the guy who made that decision is the guy who has been looking at the way Robinson Cano has been swinging the bat in games, knows that it's professional hitter, borderline Hall of Famer Robinson Cano, and thought that against a guy like Eric Fetty, he would put up good at bats in the middle of the lineup today because he's Robinson Cano. I think that that's what the decision was being based off, being being made based off of. And I think that the guy who would make that decision based on the, oh, he's Robinson Cano and he's swinging a good bat right now, that's going to be Buck Showalter. That's not going to be Ben Zosmer or some analytical nerd. That's going to be Buck Showalter making that choice based off of his inferences as a baseball guy. Yeah. So I think that I, that's, that was the vibe I got with Cano batting third, that that's a Buck move. Potentially. I don't know. I'm definitely, I, I'm still definitely of the opinion that like, cause I think like, I don't know. Cano batted sixth opening day. Like, they're clearly trying to pick specific matchups for him that are going to work uh, to some extent. And maybe it's the idea that he is Robinson Cano that's, like, allowing this to continue happening. But um, I don't know. I, I, I hope it ends soon because he did not really, like, impress me all that much. He dropped a bunt down against the ship. whoop de doo right? Like, he, he, he didn't have – he had, like, one extra base hit um he didn't even have an extra base hit this entire series most guys did um i'm not i'm i'm hoping we're not talking about him too much longer i think that it's yeah, just i think yeah. listen there's value to him as a guy who can come off the bench and put up a good at bat but i don't really think that robinson cano is even a shell of himself anymore i mean uh an 0 for 4 today with a pair of strikeouts he stranded three guys on base he he's at 273 through the first four games um which is only 11 at bats, yeah. uh, but that's a three for 11. I mean, uh, I just, yeah. I mean, at the really with, with a sample like that, you just have to watch it. And like, I've watched these games. It's not like a, you know, it's, it's just not, it's not clicking with the way that it really has been with most of these guys like Jeff McNeil. It's been clicking. Uh, Eduardo yeah, Escobar. Like- it's been clicking. He's also three for 11, but he's got three doubles, right? Like Mark yeah. Hanna is, is clicking. They can't seem to, he got, he got on base 10 times in the series. Yeah. Mark Cannon is hitting 800 right now. They're all singles, but he's like hitting 800. Yeah. Yeah. Guys are doing it. It just, it hopefully uh, Cano either gets with it or, or we aren't talking about it much longer. Um, I mean, the really good thing at least is even in, I think the worst pitching outcome we got during the series, right. The Trevor Williams outcome, it wasn't necessarily hard contact. Um, there wasn't really any one guy who pitched in this series, except maybe Trevor May on opening day, where I was like, he shouldn't be there. Almost all of them look good. Um, yeah. They look like they're getting out efficiently. It started with Tyler McGill on opening day. Um, me personally, I was, I was most impressed with Chris Bassett. I thought that he was especially locked in. I liked the curveball a lot. I did not realize he was going to be throwing it that often, but I think it's a fun pitch. And Adovino looks really good. I think that uh, if that continues into Philadelphia, things are probably in a better place than they than than we're giving them credit for on yeah. that front. I think that yeah. was a really good. Uh, it was a really standout positive from this yeah. weekend. The pitching looked great this weekend. The starting pitching, especially uh, Max Scherzer. You could make the argument that the the guy who looked the worst out of any yeah. pitcher on this staff this weekend of any sort of import. Right. Max Scherzer, because he yeah. came out with not his best stuff. I think he it was the only start he's made in 12 years that he didn't have a swinging strike on a fastball. Right. Uh, some ridiculous stat like that. He wound up with six Ks uh, over six innings. It's not like anyone in this podcast had a had a bet for um, 
a low stakes bet, but a bet nonetheless of over six and a half strikeouts for Scherzer in that night. So, um, yay me, I guess. Yeah, I, 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 I have not been betting yet. I'll, I'll be waiting until it gets a little bit higher stakes, probably. Fair, but, yeah, fair. It, it, but uh, yeah, that's that's beyond uh, the point of it. Is is just that he still put up six innings, three runs, three hits, six strikeouts, one walk, and eighty pitches, and didn't really look particularly great, and still put together a quality start and won that game. Yeah. And Carrasco also, I think, I mean, the first inning remains a problem. Uh, it really remains a problem. I think the first inning, but the other like four and four and two thirds innings, like he was, he was pretty dialed in. I mean, he yeah. seems to be mixing things up at this stage in his career. He's not just throwing the fastball and it's the location that I think is, is the big, uh, it's the big takeaway with him. It's his X factor. And he had it. Um, he was locating his slider and he was getting swings and misses on the split change. He's, uh, he's predominantly been a slider guy in his career and he was working more of a curveball in today, both he was yeah. working both in, but he was working more right. curveballs in today and it yeah. was working. Uh, I agree. And then going back to Bassett. Yeah. Before we talk about Tyler McGill, cause I think we do have to talk about Tyler McGill. Oh yeah. That's the, yeah. That was the story of opening day, but Bassett yeah. really. Yeah. Bassett. I think that Chris Bassett rocks. Yeah, I was saying it on Twitter last night. I think he's fantastic. I really, really enjoyed watching him pitch last night on uh, on Saturday. The fact that he can go between a repertoire of however many pitches he's got, they say six on the broadcast, right? Uh, including, you know, the fastball that sits 92, 93, which is nothing special, but it plays up so much stronger and so much faster when you can mix that 71 72 mile an hour curveball in because a hitter is going to have to stay back and then all of a sudden when you've got that curveball in the back of your mind uh not only the curveball but the changeup and the slider he can throw anything in a 20 mile per hour window uh even sometimes more 25 sometimes he's throwing curveballs as slow as 65 66 before yeah so when you have to keep your your eyes on that velocity change that 93 is all of a sudden 97, 98, because it gets on you quicker because you have yes. to sit back in yeah. case he's throwing you one of his many off-speed pitches. So not only that, but he's such a fascinating pitcher. He's got like the lowest release point in baseball. He drives for a guy who's 6'2", 6'3". He drives yeah. down the mound. He drives down the mound better than anyone else in the game because he's releasing the ball so close to home plate and so low to the ground uh, because he's so good at getting down the mound and extending on his release point. It's really like, it's a pitching clinic. He's remarkable to me. Yeah. And it will replicate, which is the best part about it. Even if like, even really when you look at the fact that baseball savant tends to disagree with him when it comes to his fastball spin, when it comes to, obviously, I mean, we've talked a bit about the velo profile. Like this is not really a guy that, uh, strikes you the way that a DeGrom strikes you or a Scherzer strikes you or even a Charlie Morton strikes you right because I think that uh the curveball sort of draws comps to that but uh it really is just a different experience for any hitter I mean really it's going to be exciting to see how these guys I know Bassett does not line up against Philadelphia so we won't get to see it just yet but to see how these guys pitch to hitters beyond the likes of like you know, Michael Franco and, and Victor Robles. Uh, Cause that I think is going to be the real test. These were not great hitters. Um, they were still getting the job done at least, uh, but it, you, you still got to get it done. And they, and they, yeah. they all looked really, really good. And I think Bassett lines up for the home opener, right. Yeah. Against Arizona on Friday. Friday. Uh, yeah. And then there's the whole Tyler McGill of the situation. Right. Um, who is in this starting rotation now uh, with Jacob Grom hurt. And if you're closing your eyes and just watching the velo numbers in the first few innings of opening day, uh, then you might not have even realized that Jacob deGrom was hurt because Tyler McGill, who this is not out of nowhere size wise, he is six foot seven. uh, He is a large, large man. Um, He unlocked something because in spring training, you can never quite be sure if the velocity readings are all that accurate. They're yeah. spring training ballparks. They're minor league ballparks. Uh, maybe those radar guns are are a little hot sometimes. So when he was throwing 97 in spring training, no one was really thinking much of it. They were just like, oh, 
this could be something if that's an accurate reading. And then he's throwing 97 to 99 on opening day. With movement, with real movement. And all of a sudden, it's like, this is something. Yeah. Because if Tyler McGill unlocked, not only that, his slider looked great Mm -hmm. on opening day. And the changeup looked decent, too. And he's working this new cutter thing in a little bit, too, which is a work in progress. Yeah. But if Tyler McGill unlocked an extra level of stuff, with whatever he did this offseason, whatever magical Michael Jordan juice he was drinking. Yeah. That is that makes him such a more valuable piece to this team. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think with McGill, what he ultimately showed was that he's not just somebody who pitched a lot of innings because people got hurt last year. Um, he is not just somebody that will come in to pitch from Syracuse the second you need him. Like he actually has uh, a movement profile that's working and it's getting better. Um, I think with McGill, the thing about it really, and the one thing that probably has me a little bit less enthused than most people is that he came out guns blazing in the first inning, pumping 97, 98. And the slider to his credit remained great throughout the night and had a lot of depth, but the, he, he kind of lost the uh, he lost his juice like almost immediately afterwards with the fastball. Like after the first inning, we were back to like, we went back to 95, 96. And by the end of his night, we were at 94, 95 again, which um, I mean, that's a growing pain. That's something he'll work through. Uh, but right. Like if that just means that he doesn't really have the endurance, uh, he clearly has something working uh, in the bullpen. If you need him to go there. Uh, yes. there's, yes. there's no question at this point that what Tyler McGill gave you last year is just the start. And yes. I'm really excited about that. I, absolutely. That's what, you know, I'm thinking obviously by the fourth inning, he's 95, 96, but, uh, those first couple innings when he was pumping in the upper nineties in my head, I'm like, there's a home for this guy in the back end of some bullpen. If he can touch 99 in short spurts with a possibly really plus slider, uh, like there, there's a home for him somewhere. Um, if Degrom comes back, if the rotation stays healthy, if there's room to experiment with Tyler McGill reliever, uh, you might have something here, because uh, if he can learn how to be a, a reliever, that two pitch mix could be really, really strong. Given the fact that he's already got the uh, the profile as a starter, he knows how to command the strike zone a little bit. He does know how to pitch a little bit. Um, I, I think that he could be a really effective reliever. I'm not sure that there's room for that right now on this team. I think he's going to be starting. I, we said last week when we were making oh, yeah. the predictions, I think that we're going to get a full season of Tyler McGill starts because, yes, you know, w- given the, the rotation and the health uh, historically of these guys in the rotation, the age of the guys in this rotation, I assume that at least one of them is right. going to be out at any given moment. Um, which I think opens it up for Tyler to kind of get his 25 starts in this year. Yeah. Um, So I don't think there's room for him to experiment as a reliever, but I do think that if there was, it could be a fruitful experiment for this team. Uh, The point is, is that he went five innings, three hits, no walks, six strikeouts, 68 pitches. He was very efficient. Yeah. Um, He looked fantastic. Uh, The best we've seen him look, I think. Uh, as a major leaguer purely because the stuff was much more eye popping than it's, it's ever been. Um, And we got those, uh, those 15 some odd starts with him last season. Yeah. Probably the best surprise of, uh, of this whole series, probably the most pleasant surprise, at least. Um, I really enjoyed that. I think. Yeah. Him, him or, or just guys like McNeil and Canna looking really, really strong uh, um, to start the season. Yeah. I mean, I do kind of wish Dom Smith and JD Davis would get a little bit more action here or there um, in Cano's stead, but Canna, especially, I mean, all the new guys did Canna look good. Escobar looked good. Um, Marte didn't, I mean, the results don't totally show because he didn't get any at-bats today. Um, and his, I mean, his OPS is still 533, but the at-bats are clearly fine. He plays a good right field, at least from what I've seen so far, it's, it's, it, it doesn't seem to be a disaster just yet. So that's, that's also something nice. And there's, yeah, they seem to be working between McCann and Nito. There isn't one set catcher, which um, 
if we talk lineup card decisions, I mean, obviously there are some things that have been confusing to this point. I think not tabbing a guy as the catcher will, will go a long way for both of them probably. Yeah. I mean, we saw it last year um, when Nito got a little more playing time, McCann's offensive capabilities took a step forward. Um, like I don't, I just think James is a guy who can't be an everyday five times a week starting catcher and also be productive offensively. I don't think he can command the pitching staff and also focus on his own at bats. I, that's just the the vibe that I've gotten through a season plus now yeah. of James McCann. I mean, just look what happened when he started playing some first base last year. Right. His numbers jumped offensively. I don't know what it is, but when he's catching every day, he's not, he doesn't hit. Um, yeah. So if they're splitting time, I think that could be really fruitful, especially considering how strong Tomas is as a catcher defensively he's better than James and James McCann is not a terrible catcher um and I mean Nito had a really good offensive spring so maybe they're we've seen glimpses of his bat over the years um and if he can be passable as a uh, a split time catcher offensively then that's a huge boost to this team probably coming out of that number nine spot in the lineup every day and he's Uh, bunting he's getting his bunts down Sam yeah he got a bunt hit today He's been, they've been like working him like crazy with bunting. I don't, I don't get it. And I don't really know if I like, I'm not enjoy down for it, the, but I'm it's not, fine. I'm, yeah. I'm not down for the sacrifice bunting. He, no. he tried to do that once in this series, but the, the fact that he dragged a bunt for a hit and it worked as a right-hand hitting catcher, like that was fun. Well, the, the fact that he's literally a right-handed hitting, like power hitting catcher and he seems to know how to bunt is, is just kind of, I don't know. I think it's funny. I think there we've seen time and time again. I mean, think about like three, four years ago, right? When Ahmed Rosario, this dynamic slap hitting can't miss. I shouldn't say can't miss prospect, right? Because we kind of did miss. But like he couldn't even get a bunt down. It was the yep. most frustrating thing. No one on the team seemed to know how to get a bunt down. Um, again, I don't think I, I think if the bunt went extinct everywhere, we'd be totally OK with that. Like it'd be fine baseball would not suffer like I think the strategy is overstated but like if they are good at it it's a lot more rewarding than it's otherwise been um I'm, yeah I'm, I, I, I yeah it. we I mean I hate bunting in general bunting for a hit every now and again is is fine but uh sacrifice bunting needs to go by way of the dinosaurs yeah um but Tomas you know I have always been a Tomas believer I like Tomas and I, I think that he's a a solid piece for this team i think uh we've kind of we haven't alluded to it even yet and we should probably talk about it is the hit by pitch situation yeah this season with the mets uh being hit three times on opening night uh including pete getting one ricocheting off his mouth lindor getting one off the face saved by his his c flap McCann was hit twice before Pete on opening day. Neither of them. Well, there was the one off the toe and then there was the one that hit him on the shoulder, but it, the it shoulder wasn't. one is like half a degree from, from the chin. Like it yes. was pretty scary. It was, I think obviously Pete was a little more scary, Yes, but yes, the fact that in this series, cause then Marte also got hit by a curveball last night. Like the Mets were getting hit left and right in the series and three of those hit by pitches were up in the shoulder face area uh, off of three different pitchers, Andres Machado, Mason Thompson, and Steve Ciszek. Uh, So the Mets, they took offense to that after Lindor got hit because that's the third time someone got hit up near the face. Uh, In fact, it hit Lindor in the face. Um, He's fine, thankfully, uh, because of that C flap, but the bench is cleared and there's been some discourse about, that response about the Mets, whether they should retaliate, whether it was right for Buck to lead his guys out of the dugout, um, which, and he did kind of lead that charge, but you know, this was game three of the season in which this happened, uh, which is crazy to me, but I mean, what, what do we think of this Jack? Because I, I know I have my thoughts. I'll let you kind of take it first though. Um, well, okay. So the thing, the thing is like the case is probably closed now and it was not even closed. It's not even closed because the series is over. I think once Pete Alonso hit the grand slam, that was just like 
like that was how the Mets wanted to get payback was just to beat their skulls in, you know, on, you know, on the field. Uh, I think that's probably the best solution for all parties involved is to win the game by continuing to play baseball and show it to them in that way. However, um, I have not seen the Mets just like get in a fight before. Uh, I think it would have been fun to see somebody throw behind somebody else and invite an actual fight. Uh, it would not have been the right thing to do. It would not have been productive. Someone would have gotten suspended, no doubt. Um, you set off a chain of events in which people are throwing at people to get even for the last time someone threw at someone else. Um, but yeah, when Lindor got hit in the face, like I, I was, I was, I was mad. Like I was really like, like you assholes, like get it right. And obviously they're not trying to hit any of these guys, right? Like they all just suck, but it's like, get better. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't be here. If there's a chance when you throw inside, it's going to cliff a guy right in the face. Just simple as that. I think that like, you know, you have to, at some point, make it clear intent or not, that that's not okay. And that that's not going to fly. I think beating them and showing it to them in that way is the, the safest and best way to do it. Uh, but for my own entertainment purposes, I think that actually like indicating it by throwing at someone, like I would have been, I would have been fine with that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know about you. I don't know how, where you stand on that. Cause I know for some people it's, it's too, there's too much of a risk that you would actually in trying to hit someone behind the back, you end up hitting them in the face, right? Like that's, you don't want to do that. You don't want to head hunt, but I am. Yeah. I, I am anti-retaliation. I, yeah. I think that using baseballs that you can throw faster than a car on a highway um, as a projectile, as a weapon is extremely and inherently dangerous um, and can lead to some really, really awful moments. Um, so I'm with you on that. Anti-retaliation in terms of headhunting, I don't think there's necessarily an issue if you're trying to hit someone, you know, in the behind. Yes. Um, as, long as, them. as long as you can do it, as long as you can hit someone in the ass, um, that's the safest place to get hit with the baseball because it's the most padding for these guys. They're pretty strong in the leg areas. Uh, I do think that, yeah, I, I, it's it, – listen, I understand the baseballs, that Major League Baseball screws around with the baseballs, and I, I get that the baseballs are like – I think Tom Hackamer described them to me as uh, like a cue ball that's covered in soap, that there's, this year's batch of balls uh, are, are slippery, that they're hard to grip, that they're slippery. So I get that it wasn't intentional. These guys stink. Mason Thompson has terrible command. Like this is part of his profile uh, and that the ball being slippery doesn't help. Yeah. But, but everyone uses the same ball. We, yes. Yeah. The, the Mets didn't hit any nationals in the, the entire series. We 13 guys got on base the entire series. Like we were fine. We had no problem with it. And we're not even like, we're not even like the the, the paragon of, of pitching in this league and we got it right. Like, yeah, I'd these, like these guys just suck. It's, it's not just, just the ball here. Steve Ciszek's been in the league a decade. You expect me to believe that like he wasn't at least trying to pitch up and in on Lindor and the ball got away a little bit. Like, come on, man. Like, I get that you weren't doing it intentionally, but be better than that. Yeah. So I it, it harkens back to me to the Jacob Rame incident which uh, didn't lead to a bench clearing incident, but it was certainly part of that uh, rather heated rivalry between two mediocre teams in the 2017 to 2019 Mets Phillies era when Jacob Rame threw over the head of Reese Hoskins. Yeah. Because again, Jacob Rame also stunk and couldn't throw a strike. Right. Um, and then Hoskins took offense to it. The Phillies got all heated up and, and then Hoskins hit a home run and decided to um, walk around the base paths instead of jogging like a normal human because his way of showboating and retaliating against Ram, one, by hitting the home run, good on you, but two, by taking a sweet time around the bases. That's what it reminded me of yeah. to an extent. In both scenarios, headhunting, not okay. Totally understand when a team gets upset about it 
even in situations where it's pretty clearly unintentional. Uh, also reminds me in the sense that the best way to retaliate is not by throwing a baseball at someone else, but by beating the team that you think is trying to headhunt you. And um, the which field. the Phillies did in that situation with Hoskins hitting the home run and the Mets did in this situation by winning three of four and Pete Alonso hitting a grand slam with the really cool bat flip and shushing the crowd, which sure, Pete. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that was kind of awkward because like what crowd? That's right? just, yeah, that's you, you were, he was shushing his own fans at that point, I think. Yeah, yeah, that was just Pete being a goof. Yeah. Uh, like, again, Pete is a guy that has pretty low levels of feel in general, but like, he, he thinks he's so much cooler than it is, and which is part of the reason which I, I think we love him as a fan base so much is because he's just a giant goofball and it's incredibly endearing, but that's beyond the point. I, I digress. Uh, yeah, it just reminded me of the, the Reese Hoskins incident because, like, it was a bunch of people getting upset, not for no reason, but for kind of silly reasons. Uh, but I think the Mets were more in the right here than the Phillies were at that point, because it happened like yeah. three times. It happened three times. It's three separate near-death experiences. Oh, that's, so, that's what it was. Reese yeah. Hoskins got it once. And like, if he wants to be mad, he can be mad. I like, I actually think in hindsight, if Pete had done what Reese Hoskins had done, I would have loved it even more than what he ended up doing. Like as, as, as much as we as Met fans think that it was disrespectful, like it, it also is a fun way to piss people off and hurt their feelings. So like, I think, yeah, it definitely draws parallels to that. But I do also feel like the Mets typically aren't on the end of it that that gets the last laugh. And I would, I guess, the only other thing really, it's just like, it would have been kind of cool uh, at, the, at the minimum if, as that had happened, we'd gotten Ron and Keats input on this. Because I think those two, with their history with the, with the organization, it would have been a lot more... Uh, a lot more death penalty uh, than we've been, but it like, that's the thing too, that I thought a lot about. Um, and that's nothing against the Apple TV stream, but I think that they probably would have been a little bit more pro buck than most of us. Like, I think we would have gotten more of like the, the extended shots of Buck Walter, you know, chirping Steve Shishak, which I thought was cool, but also like, yeah, we're going to be, that's like the Terry Collins ass in the jackpot thing now. Like, they're never going to let us forget that he did that. Yeah, like, respect to Buck. Buck, you know, is new to this job, too, and he's got to earn the respect of his clubhouse and and all that stuff, and they need to know that he's got their back. And, you know, I, I appreciate him being the first guy out of the dugout. Um, and I think it does speak to the respect he has in the clubhouse already that as soon as he steps beyond the top step of the dugout, the entire dugout poured out behind him. Um, you know, I think that 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 is indicative of this team being pretty cohesive as a unit yeah. um, and having each other's back, which is a good thing for a baseball team to have. Uh, so I respect that. I'm also really, really glad that he didn't retaliate. I'm really I'm, I'm really glad he didn't retaliate um, on the field in terms of hitting someone else or throwing right. behind someone else. Because there's just, I mean, wh what are you going to do? You're not going to hit Juan Soto because like that would be pointless. He's going to get you on look base like the asshole. If you throw at Juan Soto, yeah. even if, even if you're right, it's Juan Soto. Everyone knows Juan Soto. The Mets just tried to kill Juan Soto. Like, yeah. And then Juan Soto comes up in the next at bat and does something that Juan Soto does often and, and slams a baseball somewhere. And you look like an, like an idiot. Uh, because now he, you just gave him fuel to, you know, do something against your team even more. You can yeah. hit Nelson Cruz, but like, again, what's the point? It's a bad nationals lineup beyond those two. And even Cruz might be on the, the finally on the downturn now, um, remains He's to be seen. Yeah. Well, remains to be seen. He wasn't that good for Tampa in the second half last year. He's the elder uh, statesman, though. I think it's like the respect your elders thing with Cruz. Yeah, you yeah, don't hit Cruz. He's a nice guy. He likes. And then beyond that, teams. beyond that, what are you going to do? You're going to hit Josh Bell. You're going to hit Michael Franco. No, that's dumb. Get those guys out because they're not very good. Uh, which is that's that's it. Is that they did a good job of putting it where their mouth is and just you know holding the Nationals' offense to what five runs this series, six runs this series. Yeah, something along those lines. And not many after that happened. 
Um, they or maybe yeah, it was what maybe eight runs total. How many did they score on opening day? One. It was five to one, seven to three, five to nothing, four to two. So four runs after that incident. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's that's how you do it. I mean, this is the first time. I mean, the Mets had a bases loaded incident or bases clearing bench clearing incident. Excuse me, last season against the whole Dom Smith Jose Alvarado thing over the summer. It's it, you you listed them out for us today. Since 2015, the Mets have had five bench clearing incidents. Four of those five have been against the Phillies. Yeah, the Phillies and the Mets hate each other. Right. Good. Yeah, well, because they they get in these really close games and the adrenaline always, no matter how bad both of those teams were, they always played very like tight and close. Right. I mean, obviously badly played games, but a lot of emotion. But like it's, 27, like there was the the Reese Hoskins incident, the whole quick pitch against Cameron Rupp thing in 2015 with Hansel Robles. Yeah, which I think people forget about nowadays. That was a whole thing. And Larry Boa going on a tirade about that. Uh Estrubal Cabrera after his bat flip against Edubrai Ramos and then probably forgetting that he did that against Edubrai Ramos and the next time he faced him, Ramos threw behind him. And right. Cabrera after the game was like, I don't even know who that guy is. Right. And it was stupid because he did it in like a tie game. And then Cabrera like scored the winning run. Like yeah. very 27, a 2017 Philadelphia Phillies masterclass. The only bench clear that I can actually remember ever amounting to like a fight was like I think I think the year was 2007 but it was like Miguel Olivo on the Marlins trying to punch out Jose Reyes um because that Marlins team had been trying to hit the Mets all game because the Mets had scored like 12 runs against them and their pitchers in in a way kind of similar to the Nationals were not locating because they really sucked like they were trying to hit Met hitters and they kept missing Met hitters um and I think it it boiled over with Luis Castillo uh and some pitcher who like literally never pitched after that year with the Marlins it was like a very quick tenure I don't even remember his name but like never heard from him again but on that guy's way off of the mound Reyes chirped him um and Miguel Olivo ran over from the mound to third base where Reyes had been standing to try and like clock him and um like 75 year old third base coach Sandy Alomar senior got right between them and caught like a whole Miguel Olivo fist, like right to the face. Yeah. Um, yeah, there were other, I think like scraps in the middle of that. It's not the eighties anymore though. Is no, really it's not. It's... You never see it. You just never see the Mets do it. Baseball, never fights. Had... Baseball fights are inherently kind of weirdly funny because yeah baseball is not a sport where you fight it's not hockey hockey fights are legit yeah gloves down punches thrown almost every game but in baseball it's just like especially because so many of them first of all you have the visual of the bullpen guys being late to everything yes um which is hilarious every single time um and then you get these crowd shots on the broadcasts where it's just a bunch of guys in pajamas basically is what baseball uniforms are pushing and shoving and shouting in this big mosh pit um which is not even a fun mosh pit yeah you've been in a mosh pit because they're just kind of pushing and shoving against each other you get all these shots of guys yelling at each other no punches being thrown most of the time it's hilarious because it's it feels very like anticlimactic what are you actually accomplishing here yeah, they're they're trying to clear it and they're taking forever to clear it. That's what's happening. Like yeah. it is it's a really like it tends to be like that. I thought the Amir Garrett fight was like probably the pinnacle of baseball. We're, we will never ever see another Amir Garrett fight again. I don't yeah, think. I can't believe that the Royal that the Reds uh, exiled him off to Kansas City. Yeah. Yeah. When the, Mets, that was- the Mets needed a left-handed reliever. Amir played basketball in New York in college like Bring him home. Yeah, he was cool our guy. guy. That would like, have been not, cool. Maybe not a very good pitcher anymore, but cool guy. Yeah. Um, and now he's off in Kansas City. That's a shame for him. Uh, we have guys, though, that would win in a fight. We have a lot of dudes that would win in a fight, like Taiwan Walker and James McCann taking turns, like stomping you, uh, while Tyler McGill uh, waits for his turn kind of guys. Uh, like, 
Yeah, they, got, they are yeah. built. Pete Alonso is built. Pete um, Alonso would go to bat for any of these guys. Starling Marte would snap someone in half. They Starling have. Marte they just is, have that many big guys. Starling Marte is jacked. Yes. I do not want to mess around with Starling Marte. Yeah, Tyler McGill is six foot seven. Max Scherzer is insane. Yeah. These yeah, guys. Max Scherzer has definitely killed someone in another life. Yeah, Max Scherzer. Max Scherzer is a rabid dog. Like this dude, that he will. We know what he does on the mound. He's That's going like, to actually be fun when he goes to Philly and sees Joe Girardi again. That was one of the best mm-hmm. fight non-fights ever when Girardi basically tried to get the umpires to triple check him for, for goop and they yeah. couldn't get it. So Scherzer just like from the dugout, like full hands up, like, Hey, I have nothing. See nothing. Like, and Girardi got mad about that. It's just like, yeah, didn't he I want to see. Yeah. Didn't he undo his belt too in the dugout? Like he, he undid his belt. Like the second time they checked him. Cause he was so fed up with Girardi's shit. And then when he went back into the dugout, he then showed Girardi, hey, I got nothing. Um, he could use the belt on Joe Girardi, not endorsing any of it, but he knows how to take it off. Sure. Jack. Not endorsing anything from that either. Should we just remember some guys? Let's remember some guys. I think that's as good a point as any to, uh, to move on to our final segment as usual. Um. Yeah, I'll I'll go based off this vein of guys who caused bases uh, benches clearing incidents. Uh, how about Drew Gagno? That's a good one. That's a, that's actually a good one. Who uh, gave up a long home run to Colorado Rocky Daniel Murphy in twenty nine? Murphy pimped it too. Murphy really enjoyed it. Yeah, and then he threw at Ian Desmond. I think right. He hit Ian Desmond with a changeup. It was it was not on purpose. Yeah, but, it wasn't on purpose, but the optics like, of Gagne it after getting sucked at he, that point, he was getting op- yeah. shelled at that point in his career. He was giving up homers left and right. And then yeah. the optics of it, of hitting a guy right after giving up a long home run that got pimped, like, right. Oh, he took offense to that, you know, Murphy pimping a homer and in the, the Rockies really didn't like it. The Rockies who wound up making the playoffs that year um, and were like, fine. Uh, they made that wild card game, I think, right against the Cubs, like. I think it was a year after. Oh, this was the year after that? They, yeah, Murphy. They signed Murphy after they did that. That was like they they didn't build on any of that good stuff. And they just oh, signed Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that was my – they were – yeah, that, that game at Wrigley was – Murphy was a cub mind. during the during the wild card game. Yes, that was Which the fall is even of weirder my, than Rocky was, Daniel Murphy. Yeah, that was the fall of my freshman year. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Was uh, So that was like – yes, that was 2018. Oh God, and I'm graduating in a month. Um, Me too, dude. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be a pleasant, good graduation. Pleasant, good graduations um, all around. But yeah, that, Drew Gagne, the one? and then Drew Gagne went off to Korea. Yeah, he and did. like was pretty sensitive on Twitter about some stuff. I think I don't know. Well, I I probably would have had some choice words for Mets fans too after leaving the Mets. Mets fans were very mean to him. Even just now, I was probably a little bit meaner to him than I meant to be. Um, he probably also didn't have. I would imagine he would not have had that much fun like with Mickey Callaway as his manager because there really was a point in 2019 like the depths of hell during that year was like Aaron Altair playing every day and Drew Gagne being the seventh inning guy. Cause they had no one else. Like everyone else was either hurt. Familia was literally like, I think they had just put Familia on the injured list. Cause he had like Bennett lesion syndrome. So everyone was like mocking him for that. Their bullpen was completely shot and Gagno got overworked, got tired very quickly, gave up. He averaged 4.2 homers per nine innings. Um, it yeah, probably was wasn't all his fault. He was giving up nukes. Uh, I think that fight was, and this is the last uh, like bit of info I'll offer on the Rockies fight. I think that's where we got that screenshot of Michael Conforto like standing in the middle and like standing around with like just his hands out, like but in between right field and second base, having no idea if he needed to come down because of a fight or not. So he's just kind of like with his hands out, like, wait, like what, what am I doing? What are we doing? Um, I'll try and find it. I'll try and find it and post it. Uh, it's a good, it's a, it's a good one that I, uh, yeah. So on memories of, yeah. So Drew Gagne in two seasons with the Mets. Well, yeah, they're, yeah, he, I'm looking at the numbers, his ERA in 2019 
was 8.37 in 18 games. Uh, yeah. And then he went off to the KBO, played for the Kia Tigers in 2020 as a 30-year-old. A decent 11 and 8 with a three point or a 4.34 earn run average in 28 starts. Decent, um, if not slightly effective. And the last two years, he just got a season start. He's made one start for uh, Wei Xuan of the Chinese Professional Baseball League. Yeah. Um, so he's off in China right now, pitching for for them. So he's still cooking. He's still uh, still chucking baseballs for a living. He is still out there to be signed by the Seattle Mariners. Yeah, so. he was a I mean ERA at three point nine three in China last year in uh, eighteen games, Not bad. Um, which is I wouldn't say dominant, but sure. Yeah. Well, on the vein of remembering guys in the context of this series, now obviously this would be a lot more fun if the Mets were four and zero, because the last time they were four and zero to start a year was two thousand twelve the World Series winning 2012 Mets, the no-hitter throwing 2012 Mets. R.A. Dickey was Cy Young that year. 2012 was a great year. Um, don't a great record. year for a bad team, yeah. Great, just a great fun time uh, losing 88 games. But I remember uh, their 3-0 and start to that year before they won the fourth game. They pitched Frank Francisco in every one of those games, and he got a save in each of them. And on top of their three and O start, there was all this fanfare about the bullpen that they had basically pieced together with Frank Francisco, the most unlikely closer imaginable, like just setting it off the first three games, converting three saves. It's kind of, kind of crazy that he pitched three games in a row to start a season even. Um, so he has that going for him. He also has his own connection to a brief, uh, not fight, but awkward hit by pitch moment in uh in met lore i don't know how familiar you are with this so stop me when we get to it uh it's 2013 and he's just hit jason worth with a fastball down three and oh down like six to one like it's it's so obvious that he's done this it's september the game doesn't matter the nats had clinched the division uh or no no 2013 didn't but they you know the mets were out of it so francisco hits him and on the broadcast like just out of thin air, Ron Darling just starts stewing and he's just like, he hit him on purpose. And Gary Cohen is like very peacefully trying to be like, well, why would Frank Francisco? Cause he's a fool. That's why. Like, and he just spent the next five minutes, like just tearing into this dude. I think at one point, like there was such significant blowback to Ron Darling doing that, that like players went on Twitter and tweeted in Francisco's defense um but it was kind of funny just seeing i really i really do i can't overstate how much fun it would have been to hear keith and ron react to lindor getting hit by that pitch because it would have been a lot of it probably wouldn't have been safe for the airwaves um they probably would have uh gone down there themselves to fight so frank francisco the connection two different connections to med history that that fit today yeah i I, I understand. I don't really recall that. I vaguely do. I Frank Francisco appeared in 56 games across two seasons for a Met for the Mets in 2012. He appeared in 48, the bulk of those. Yeah. I have not a single recollection. Frank Francisco's New York Met. I don't remember ever watching him pitch. I don't know why that is. I just don't recall. Like, I know he was a, a prominent Mets player in 2012. He had 23 saves. Yeah. Was he good in those 48 games? No, not really. ERA in the mid-fives. Uh, kept the ball in the ballpark. Only five homers. Good for him. But yeah. uh, And he didn't walk guys either, really. No, it felt a lot worse than the stats would tell you. Um, it wasn't really, like, that bad. But he basically went from the guy who saved the first three wins of a 3-0 and start to the season – to Frank Francisco. So everybody was on his ass about it. I yeah, think, he had a 69 yeah. ERA plus, which is nice, but also not good. 553 uh, ERA. And like, it was, it's even worse if you go into game logs and you do this from like the first bad game to the end of the season. He, that, it, wasn't it was, the, that wasn't the team that had Jose Valverde on it. That was 2014? Yeah, 2014 was Valverde. 2012 was the year that they had Frank Francisco... And then the setup men 
were John Roush and Ramon Ramirez. Yeah. Like they traded Angel Pagan to build that bullpen. And it yep. was I like, do remember John Roush because how can you forget John Roush? John Roush is also another guy, guy who would win a fight. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say another guy yeah. I would not be uh, looking forward to squaring up with. Drew Gagno and Frank Francisco. Those are our guys today. And the Mets have a record. They're three and one. They're playing baseball. Games were underway in the 2022 season, and we are continuing to roll right along here on the Pleasant Good Evening podcast. This was episode 76. If you liked it, if you haven't heard more of us, go check out previous episodes. We've had some fun guests on, some players, some Twitter personalities. You may enjoy those episodes. Um, had Tim Britton of The Athletic on a few weeks ago. Check that out if you guys want. Um, should have some more fun guests uh, hopefully soon in the future as well. He's Jack Hendon. I'm Sam Lebowitz. Again, check us out. We're on Twitter as well at the PGE pod um, where we'll have more content, especially as we move towards the summer. should have some more fun content, hopefully for you guys on that side of things. Um, but that'll do it for episode 76 here uh, for Jack Hendon. I've been Sam Lebowitz and Mets fans. Have a pleasant evening. Thank you.